Hello, and welcome to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. Each year, the prestigious Beverly Alt Scholarship provides senior fellows at the Kinghorn Cancer Centre in Sydney an opportunity to enrich their educational and career training activities. This fellowship honours the life of Beverly Alt and the compassionate care she received at the Kinghorn Cancer Centre. As such, our very own Dr. Josh Hurwitz abandoned me to go gallivanting in the United States of America. He was able to attend the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium in Texas, as well as engage with some of the brightest minds in cancer care and research at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. Meanwhile, I was left to freeze in one of the coldest Australian summers on records. No, I'm not bitter. Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, supported by the Kinghorn Cancer Centre and the Beverly Alt Scholarship, is incredibly honoured to present a series of interviews with specialists who have influenced the course of medical oncology on both a global and personal scale, providing the promise of innovative, personalised medicine. In this episode, Josh interviewed Dr Anne Partridge, the Director of the Adult Survivorship Program at the Dana-Farber Institute. She is the co-founder and director of the Program for Young Women with Breast Cancer and has a particular passion for communication, risk perception and behavioural aspects of cancer care. She is the principal investigator for the Young Women's Breast Cancer Study, which has currently enrolled over 1,300 women throughout the United States. She has also chaired both ASCO's Scientific Program Committee and the ESMO-sponsored Breast Cancer in Young Women Conference. And thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. So what I'd love to do with our guests who come on the show is kind of talk about what led to you getting to where you are today. I'd love to know what motivated you to do medicine and really end up in oncology. So medicine was motivated by growing up in a house which was led by, for a long time, a single father who is a surgeon. He's now retired, uh, my dad. But my um, brother, sister, and I sat at the dinner table with my dad and heard about cases uh, a lot when we were growing up. We went into the OR with him. We sat in the nurse's station or in the car waiting for him. This was back in the day when you could leave kids in the car <laughs> and waited for him a lot because um, you know he was basically raising us during some of our more formative years and both my sister and I went into medicine. And for me, it was kind of a calling. I was excited by it. I always um, was fascinated by the science and also the humanistic aspects of it uh, from a young age. In fact, I tried not to go into medicine when I was in college and kept being drawn back to it despite some efforts of trying other things. Fair enough. And I guess the question goes, so your father was a surgeon. What sort of surgeon was he? So he did um, general and vascular surgery. Okay. What led to you moving? I guess oncology is somewhat displaced from uh, the surgical life, but, you know, you do medicine, and at least for us in Australia, you do a rotation in oncology. It might be eight weeks, and it might be even less if you're doing a postgraduate course somewhere in the States. But, you know, you, you mentioned the humanistic side, but what led to the, uh, the passion in oncology specifically? You know, so my sister actually became a surgeon. Oh, yeah. So she followed right in my dad's footsteps. I got to medical school, and I'm one of those people that liked everything. Every rotation I did, I loved it, thought I was going to be a surgeon, and then I did medicine. And to be honest, the first rotation in medicine, I was kind of a little bored. I was looking, I was like, what's going on? This is kind of boring. We're just sitting around. What actually was happening was the people who were further ahead of me, my residents, the attendings, they were talking. I just didn't understand what they were talking about. And so once I got clued in to all of the exciting 
science and medicine that was going on above my head initially, and then I was able to be part of the conversation, I realized that I liked that a lot more than going into the OR and that kind of environment. So that's what led me to medicine over surgery. And then I guess the next logical step is moving into oncology. Was oncology, did you do the rotation? You you loved it. And of course, there's heaps of science in oncology. And the field over the last 10 years has exploded, but over the last 30 years has really just seismically changed more so than honestly any other specialty. For sure. So the initial draw for me was the science and particularly hematology, because in the States, typically they're combined in many programs into hematology and oncology programs. So I was compelled by the hematology. Where I went to medical school, there was um, a very strong hematology division. And then the science of oncology was exploding. You know, this is in the late 90s or early 90s. And so um, the, I was really compelled by the, the then coming to fruition science of oncology. And so the two of them pulled me in. And then when I started doing clinical rotations, that's when I realized um, that what I really like doing is caring for people with a very serious illness especially when they were in that moment of making decisions and how to kind of best see themselves through it. And to be a part of that, to be able to help guide people both medically and from a support standpoint for me was very compelling. Mm-hmm. I always say it's, a, it's quite an honor and a privilege to care for what is a really vulnerable community, I think, more so than many other sort of subspecialties. You know, this is... Uh, dramatic changes in their life you know things that they haven't chosen no one chooses to get cancer I mean no one chooses to get heart disease I guess you could say but cancer in itself affects not only the patient and the family and I guess their their circles yeah I would argue that it's a it's a privilege but it's also a huge responsibility Mm -hmm. and for me when I was thinking about what medical specialty I was going to do it's not that I didn't want to take care of the whole person or do kind of the, some of the primary care things. I actually like taking care of the whole person, but I really wanted them to have something going on that was um, sometimes chronic, but maybe more acute and needy. So I felt like I can make a short-term difference in how they're doing. Um, and that's where things like early breast cancer came in because, you know, there's so many pivotal, pivotal decision-making times during the care of people with newly diagnosed early breast cancer in particular or with metastatic disease, you know, when they need to change therapy. So kind of that feeds my own need to kind of make a difference in the short term um, for an individual patient. Yeah, very, very true. And we'll get to everything, all the juicy little bits you just said. But before I do... We're sitting here in one of the Dana-Farber offices, which is one of the premier institutions in the United States and probably globally. I like to say every institution is the best, but I suspect Dana-Farber with two Nobel laureates probably sits slightly above. Why why Dana-Farber and why this role in research and I guess trying to make a difference on both a local and really a national and a global scale? So Dana-Farber is a phenomenal place. There are a number of phenomenal places in the world. And what, you know, the two things that, that drew me here, one was personal. I, I met someone who was from Massachusetts and wanted to come back to Massachusetts. Okay. Uh, and so, um, and we are now married 25 years. So uh, that was a good call. Yep. So I came here with him. Uh, but I chose Dana Farber in particular 
uh, and I stay at Jane of Farber because it's not only you know a very deep and broad bench of clinical, translational, and basic scientists, uh, but we've I've also and many of us here felt this have had the support to to be a little bit um, creative in terms of how we think about the science, how we think about the care delivery, how we study it. And um, I think the support from a programmatic standpoint within uh, the different cancer types and across the institution for programs like we'll get to, I'm sure, focused on young women with breast cancer or focused on adolescent and young adult oncology or focused on older folks with different diseases. Um, We just have a lot of both great team players as well as a lot of institutional support to do the research and then try to implement it both within our institution and beyond. Hmm. I do hear that the culture here and what I've seen over the last couple of days has been quite lovely and I think Eric Weiner to an extent at least in the breast cancer field has been very instrumental in building that up with a lot of other you know players over the last many many years. What are some of the pivotal points so you mentioned sort of early breast cancer and in the metastatic, but we'll focus on the early breast cancer diagnosis. What are some of those pivotal points that you mentioned or you briefly skimmed over before that are really important in anyone's journey through cancer? Yeah, I like to think of um, cancer uh, and for an individual patient as a journey, and I think about it across the care continuum, right? So the patient comes to us typically when they're diagnosed. But I actually like to think about where they were in terms of what did they do for screening prevention? And, you know, is there something that clearly brought them to this place or is it just random, right? Mm. And so that has to do with, you know, what are their health behaviors? What's their family history? What are their genetics? Think about all that. And then when you see them at diagnosis, obviously you're going to think about all that, but you're also thinking about what are the most important things to this person right now besides treating this cancer and surviving it. Of course, that's what we all focus on in oncology, but I like to think really hard around kind of all of the other parts of the patient to make sure that we are supporting them, whether that's comorbidity and medical issues, or whether that's the psychosocial, you know, where are they coming from? You know, we're all talking these days more and more about the social determinants of health and how their, you know, their vulnerable populations or an individual's needs can not only impact on why they got cancer, but how they might do with that cancer. So super critical to consider all that. And then I like to think about where they are in their lives. You know, are they going to be able to work through this or not? Are they going to take care of their children or not? Do they care about future children? And then finally, how are they holding it all together? because we know that a cancer diagnosis and the treatment can have a profound impact on the psychosocial functioning, the emotions of an individual patient, not just short-term, but long-term. And so I try to take that all into account to some degree. Obviously, it's not one conversation and one visit or just me providing all the care around that, uh, but to pull a team together to support an individual to what they need to get through the journey. And then ideally that journey ends with long-term survivorship and mm-hmm. dying of something else old, which is yeah. like, to, I like to tell my patients, but it's of the course, goal. exactly. Yeah, fair enough. Someone once told me, uh, one of my mentors that in, in care of cancer or even a, a patient, you know, the doctor isn't the center of the world. The doctor is really 
almost a coordinator of all the other really important players in someone's care. Which brings us to some of your research, uh, if you'd be happy to chat about that. You've mentioned what, what sparked your interest, you know, it's all those social health determinants, the things that really surround a diagnosis. But can you tell me a little bit more about the Young Women's Breast Cancer Study? Sure. So we started the Young Women's Breast Cancer Study here at Dana-Farber and branched it out to, I think, 12 sites, mostly Eastern Mass, but we also have um, sites in Toronto, Canada, in Colorado, at Denver, as well as at Mayo Clinic. We tried other places as well, and it's not so easy to launch this cohort everywhere because it takes some work on the ground at the site, and not every site can kind of support it as well as one would like. And we started the study in 2006 with the idea that we know a lot about breast cancer in young women. And when I say young, I mean 40 and under or 35 and under, depending on what kind of group we're talking about. But here it's, it's 40 and under at diagnosis. We know a lot, but most of it's extrapolated from a minority of people enrolled in clinical trials or in kind of big picture population-based studies, where again, it's still a big, it's a minority, right? About 4% of patients, give or take, depending on what population you're looking at in developed countries are young breast cancer. The rest are older women just because of the demographics of breast cancer. And so we said, you know, how can we learn more about this very vulnerable population, the young women? And so we started this protocol where we were enrolling all young women diagnosed 40 and under, no matter where they came from, as long as they were seen at one of the participating institutions, we didn't get permission. We did pathology record review. So the patients themselves could tell us no or yes. We didn't want to have to ask the doctors, Mm -hmm. you know, can this patient participate? Because if the patient was distressed, they might say, leave her alone. And we're like, no, let the patient decide. We want to to measure the distress so we can look at what predicts that and how we might mitigate that over time and what, what women are doing for themselves. And so we enrolled about 150 women a year over a decade, and we ended up enrolling. We stopped it because we had so many patients and so much data, and we want to follow them long term. We stopped it in 2016 after enrolling 1,302 patients, and some of them are ineligible. We didn't enroll any men. That happened in one of the other epidemiologic studies I'm a part of. But we, it was designed to enroll women, or at least people born as women, and to follow them over time. And right now we're IRB approved to, or ethics board review approved to follow them for 20 years, but that's actually coming up for the first cohort that's getting wow. to 20 years in 2026. Mm-hmm. So we're going to ask them to sign up again for another 10 or so years because the women have stayed very engaged. And the cool thing is we've been studying this cohort now. I think our first paper came out you know, 2012 or so. Um, and we've been studying and the cohort is now maturing so that we not only can look at how people are doing at the beginning or, you know, sexual health one year later, depending on treatment or kind of arm morbidity, you know, a couple of years out based on surgery. We're now looking at actually disease outcomes, local recurrence, systemic recurrence, what predicts that, biomarkers, psychosocial, you know, issues over time and how people are doing. Uh, and so we're really learning a lot about this population uh, where, where we didn't quite have as much information before. Fair enough. And digging a little bit deeper, you know, you've, as you said, you're coming up to that 20-year mark, which is absolutely incredible. But what were the main issues or the main challenges that you found through going through you know, a huge cohort of patients who 
I mean, I'm a male and I do a lot of breast cancer, but I know there are some things that they very much don't want to talk to me about and they'd prefer to speak to, you know, a nurse practitioner or, you know, a CNC, which we have in Australia. What were those sort of like big life-changing things that the patients were worried about? Yeah, so we did a lot of formative work before we launched the cohort mm. and obviously, you know, also relied on the literature of work of others who, who, who'd done work prior and then, of course, have continued to do work. And, you know, what the three biggest issues I think about, especially at that time, and they haven't gotten any lesser, were and are genetics, the psychosocial issues, which are just different when you're diagnosed young mm. and with all of the ramifications of the diagnosis, the treatment, the where you are in your lives and kind of the um, monkey wrenched, so to speak, that's yeah. thrown into the kind of machine of your life for you know it's very inconvenient to get breast cancer to say the least for and especially for someone who's moving and shaking and busy and multitasking mm-hmm. and trying to do all that that you know a young healthy person would try and do and then the final thing and what the cohort was powered on is fertility yeah so we'd done some early work suggest that kind of brought to light the fact that a large proportion of these young patients were very interested in future fertility and yet at the time when we first launched this study those conversations were not uniformly happening around both do you care about it and even a discussion of the risk for fertility, the need for contraception, at least in the short term, because you don't want to get you know, mm-hmm. pregnant during chemo or hormonal therapy. And then finally, the emerging field of fertility preservation and trying to support people to, to do those things to, to if they were interested in future fertility, to use the tools available and maybe develop more tools to preserve their fertility. And what we found in one of our first studies before we even launched the cohort was that not only were a substantial proportion of our young patients interested in future fertility, but for about 30% of them, it was impacting treatment decisions to either forego chemotherapy or not take or cut short their endocrine therapy. And so that was a big wake-up call, I think, to the overall, at least breast cancer community, to say, whoa, we've got to figure out what's going on here because could this be one of the reasons why our youngest patients have some of the worst outcomes, even though they're otherwise healthy? Yeah, that's a very interesting thought process. And uh, San Antonio was quite interesting because there was one talk looking at cessation of endocrine therapy, and I think they say it's it's at least 30% across the board. And if you look at a younger patient cohort who probably would have the greatest benefit based on an age and a number of other factors, you know, them stopping these pivotal treatments is incredibly concerning for them and their family and everyone that surrounds them. And And I see it every day in clinic. Mm -hmm. I mean, so I saw it around the fertility. uh, But the other thing you see with a young person is, you know, it's one thing to be a 55-year-old and be getting some hot flashes or starting to have some sexual dysfunction as you go through menopause, right? Very different drives and very different peer support. You know, my all my friends are having hot flashes, so it's not like it's unique. And you know, but a 30-year-old, yeah. eh, not so much. That's and it. they're uncomfortable. And, of course, sexual functioning-wise, they're in, you know, some some of their prime ages. And so it's really tricky that things that someone might tolerate older when you're younger might be more intolerable. Yeah, that's that's very true. And across the, across the board, I found in oncology, there are those that are very good at management of side effects and those sorts of things. And others are like, you'll be fine. But the actual individual, you know, it has to be... Uh, 
ongoing process. That's right. Which brings us to one of your other really big trials, which is the positive trial. And, you know, you're a bit of a superstar in the world of oncology now, at least down under you are. Um, and I'd love, because you mentioned, I guess, the fundamentals, which is really the wanting to have kids and those sorts of things. And these days, as, as someone who's just finished their training, you know, it's a standard question I ask everyone really almost under the age of 45 will be like, you done with your family? Good. That was not the case. Yes, exactly. So uh, for you. you've been trained well. So the positive trial, I guess, is probably on the back of the, the this previous trial, right? How did you did you sit down in a room with a group of like like minded colleagues and be like, we should do a study looking at this. We should be like, you know, eighteen to thirty months. We'll you know have eighteen months to thirty months of therapy, and then you will cease and they can have it have a kid and. We'll kind of follow them up. How did how did the idea come come to fruition? So it's kind of exactly how it happens, uh, but let me tell you about it. So um, the positive style, uh, the positive study was designed to address the clinical dilemma of women who wanted the best breast cancer care and yet were being told right when they were ready to have babies or maybe had waited and then now felt the the push, they need to wait. And to take, if they want to be good doobies and take the best breast cancer care, they have to wait at least five years. And then, of course, more recently, we've had data for 10 years with tamoxifen. And so that's like a jail sentence for some of these women that want to have a baby. And so the positive trial was designed to say, could we take a break at some point, allow a woman to get pregnant or support her? She's allowing herself uh, in a very protocolized way and then get back on, knowing that the hazards of recurrence in hormone receptor positive breast cancer are pretty consistent. It's like not like there's something magical that happens at five years, yeah. right? We tell people take five years and then you can take a break and have a baby based on the data we have that it didn't you know, impair their outcomes, mm-hmm. but why not sooner? And so that's what it was designed around. And a group of like-minded people got together <laughs> in a room, uh, international group. This was ultimately led by the International Breast Cancer Study Group uh, as the cooperative group that supported it in the United States. It was the alliance, which I, which I represent. And you know, we sat down and we said, how could we study this? And we very importantly included patient advocates. And they weighed in as well, because what will women tolerate? You can't do a randomized trial here, right? What woman tolerates you can have a baby, but you can't? Yeah. Nobody's Ethic, gonna, ethically, not a... Not ethically big, foolish, <laughs> A, and B, well, ethically wrong and, yeah. you know, practically foolish because how much uh, study kind of non-adherence to your study arm would you have? Yeah. And so then we said, okay, we can't randomize. Can we randomize by, like, time spent on endocrine therapy? And then we... You know, it was turning into kind of mud in terms of the ideas about it because it was going to be so messy and people were not going to like their randomization allocation. And it's such a preference-sensitive issue having a baby. Yeah. And so we said, let's just do a single-arm trial where we pitch it against a safety threshold. Yeah. And it was cool because the idea for that came right on the heels of when the APT trial came out, which was also led through Dana-Farber where we did the exact same thing with her two positive small tumors and said, we don't want to give people the kitchen sink chemo. Can we give them just a piece of the chemo with some anti-HER2 therapy and set a safety threshold? So we had that discussion as part of this larger group. And I said, why can't we just do it like APT? One, one you know, single arm study, but we look at good historical controls. And that's what, where it was born to do a single arm trial. And then the timing of it, to be honest, was 
kind of what will the doctors tolerate in terms of safety? What will the patients tolerate in terms of safety and practicality and their own preferences? And that's where we came up with 18 months at a minimum. And then 30 actually came from the fact that people like me would make people take at least three years if they wanted to do it um, to try and stay as close to the book and then take a break. And that was based on the fact that, you know, a year of tamoxifen cuts risk by about 10%, two years cuts it by about 30%, five years cuts it by about 50%. Where does that 30% go to 50% in the span between two and five years? I would always guesstimate at three years. And so get into three years and I'd feel better and not a high risk situation. So we said, let's make it an experiment. We wanted to do shorter than that. And that's honestly where the Thirty months came from. It's almost treating the patient and the clinician, so to speak. Making for sure, sure for sure, and trying to have sound medical and scientific principles and data to support as best you can the decisions you're making. And we do love data for everything we That's do right. in oncology. And in breast cancer, we have tons of data, which is great. And now we have even more for our young survivors. <laughs> and so, tell me, so look, you know, I, I don't want to give. Uh, the the outcomes because that's the whole reason we're having this conversation but what what did you find what was the positive ending to a terrible pun the what was the outcome to this trial well it was indeed a positive trial in the sense that at least in early follow-up so at 41 months follow-up which is just over three years the local and distant and any breast cancer events were just below the safety threshold that we had set based on historical controls, mostly from soft and text. Mm. We then did a a special analysis where we did a control cohort matching analysis, again, using patients in soft and text that match the first 250 patients enrolled in positive. And when we did that, we made curves for the recurrence in soft and text, both you know, all events and then distant recurrence. And then we compared them to what actually happened in the full 500 and some patients in positive. And the positive patients look to be doing just as well, if not a little bit better than the matched cohort analysis from soft and text. So it showed us that it was safe enough and there was no clear detriment, at least at 41 months, from taking a break from your endocrine therapy, having that wash out, trying to have a pregnancy, many succeeded, and we'll talk about that, getting back on the endocrine therapy for the most part, and then taking a full course. So it's really good news. And um, you know, I think we do need to wait for the long-term follow-up because of course there could be some detriment in longer term. And I always warn patients that it's great news short-term, we have lots of retrospective data, but we do need to wait for the long-term follow-up. It doesn't mean I'm not doing it in my practice, it just means you know, I don't want to kind of do the full victory lap just yet, yeah. but I have some caution around it, particularly for higher risk patients. Yeah. Cautiously optimistic is the yeah. phrase I, I love to use. And Completely. I- and, you know, the other thing we worry about is just because it didn't harm a person or make their risk worse, women still recurred. Mm. And the numbers were not unexpected, but it's still, you know, a calamity when anybody recurs, especially a young person. And then when they recur, you know, about half of the events, four and a half percent, patients had a distant event and you know to have that during a pregnancy or when someone has a newborn or a toddler um, obviously that's you know essentially you know a tragedy would be a for some and for many it's certainly you know a life-altering experience and so um, you know being aware of that when we counsel our patients around taking a break 
getting pregnant in a person who's otherwise a little bit or a lot at risk for a recurrence, depending on the patient, is really something we need to consider. Yeah, and it's it's such a which which side of the path do you walk on? Because on one side, if you say keep taking the treatment and you miss that opportunity to have a kid and then you don't recur, you know, that's 40, 50 years that you might be like, well, my oncologist, you know, saved my life, but, you know, it's not the life I wanted. Well, that's exactly, it's, it's not our decision as yeah. the oncologist. That's where we really have to suspend our own kind of feelings, mm. help them to make the best decision for them given the data and given their preferences and values, meaning yeah. the individual patient sitting with you. Do you feel, this is a little bit of a, of a left-sided question, but do you feel that oncology as a specialty is still a bit too paternalistic? I think it's evolving, like mm. all of medicine. And, and I think that it, it does take some work to be able to suspend one's own values around this. Yeah. Um, you know, Because I can't measure how important for somebody else having a baby is yeah. or how important risk reduction is to them. You know, most people, though, they want a baby and they want one. Most people that want a baby want that baby and they don't want to hear from breast cancer again. You yeah, know, And so trying to come up with the best compromise for that person, I think, you know, you also don't want to say, here's the data, make your decision, right? Yeah. So there's a happy medium from, I, I like to think about it as both shared decision making and wise counsel, yeah. you know, because you don't want someone to just say, I'm doing it myself, I'm making these decisions and have them have no idea what the ramifications are, mm. right? We see metastatic breast cancer. They don't see that unless it happens to them as a rule. And so being clear of, okay, you're, you know, say for example, someone who's very high risk, you know, that person I would be worried about. And I'll tell them that and say, I expect you and want you to, to live a good long life, but I'm not sure that, you know, we're gonna have that opportunity and I would want you to get the best therapy possible. So even if taking the break wouldn't necessarily worsen that, you know, are you sure you want to bring a kid into the world in that situation? And these are tough conversations. You've got to actually know that person pretty well. Yeah. Usually in that setting, I've actually known the person for a while, though, because I've given them chemotherapy usually. <laughs> That's it. So it's at least a couple of years of a close exactly. relationship. Exactly. Which brings us to the next part of having the child. And there's some updated data on fertility, you know, uh, the idea of fertility, the use of IVF post-chemo, post some endocrine therapy. Could we dive into that a little bit more and look at the outcomes in that sphere? So historically, when I've had a patient who we've said, okay, it's time to get pregnant, yeah. um, I lean on the very limited data available for the use of fertility preservation like IVF before someone uh, gets cancer treatment, and the even more limited until recently data around the feasibility and safety of things like IVF once they've already gone through a fair bit of cancer treatment, including mm -hmm. often chemotherapy, and still been not able to get pregnant if they decided to become pregnant. And those data suggest safety. And fortunately, positive, we measured that, and we allowed people to do what they needed to do to get pregnant, and certainly encouraged fertility preservation use if someone had banked eggs or embryos or used you know, I, uh, ovarian suppression through treatment. Um, but remember, patients didn't enroll in positive until they were you know, at least 18 months into their endocrine therapy. And so on positive, patients were allowed to, again, do what they needed to do to get pregnant. 
And the analysis that we just reported at San Antonio suggested that doing reproductive endocrinology strategies did not worsen prognosis, again, at least in the short-term 41-month follow-up, including banking eggs or embryos, and therefore going through usually ovarian stimulation at diagnosis. And then a small subset, about 80 patients, on the trial actually used ovarian stimulation while on the study. So, you know, on average of three years out, trying to get pregnant. And those patients didn't appear to do any worse than the patients who didn't use ovarian stimulation while um, on the study. Small numbers, short follow-up, caveat, caveat. Uh, but it kind of goes with my feeling of, if you're gonna try and get pregnant, go for it. And then get back on your endocrine therapy. Yeah. Because um, you know, if you're doing that, you should, you know, ideally you're committed to it. That's it. And you know, I think we, we won't have these answers unless we have people who are altruistic and, and join these studies. And you know, Well, amazing us. that women did this, right? Yeah. Like they could get pregnant on their own. That's so, what I always, or, you know, with a little help from their IVF doctors. They don't need their oncologists. No. And so it was a true labor of love, pun intended, for the women <laughs> who participated in positive because they really wanted to give back. And men, women traveled to see me from all over the U.S. Wow to try and be on the study because they didn't want to do it without support, without a protocol, without feeling like they were you know, doing the right thing, many women, and to contribute to future knowledge. So it really is, I think, a win for both the patients and the oncology community because now we have more data to support this issue. That's it. You know, just it's phenomenal, I think, to all the patients out there. Every time we put someone on a study, I always have the conversations like, thank you because you're putting your trust in us to try and do something not just for you but really for the next generation of women who are sitting in the same position so really just fantastic yeah cool stuff i will say the one thing that we um were excited about also beyond the safety was that the vast majority of women got pregnant yeah and had babies and had healthy babies this is great yeah phenomenal and you know obviously it's not the right thing for everybody not everybody wants a pregnancy after breast cancer diagnosis when even when they're young there's a lot of societal pressures there but for the women that really did want to be and do want to have a future pregnancy, often it's something that they can get to. And that's very encouraging when they're diagnosed and feel so gloom and doom hmm. about the diagnosis and all the things they have to go through. And it just it's a little light at the end of the tunnel for many of these women. It's about having choice, you know, and also something to look forward to if that's what you want to do that's right. in your future. Let's move a bit to, I think, survivorship, because that's one of the other really big areas that you love to focus on. Um, and it's becoming quite large in Australia as well, as it should, because people are living longer and our clinics are becoming fuller, which is wonderful that, you know, people aren't dying from metastatic disease as much. But what do you see the role of survivorship? Well, I guess, first of all, for our audience, you want to tell us what survivorship is and you see the role of survivorship moving forward as we come out with better drugs and better treatments and better prevention. Yes, fortunately, survivorship is a growth industry, right, which mm. is very exciting. When I first started doing survivorship as a focus and I, you know, I had the group here at Dana-Farber and I went around to all of the different disease divisions, including neuro-oncology and thoracic oncology and and melanoma, and they said, we just want more survivors. And now we're seeing so many more survivors in those groups. You know, breast cancer, we've always had a lot of survivors, thank goodness, or at least in, since my time. And so we're seeing more and more survivors with 
no evidence of disease. And then, of course, there's a large group of people surviving and living with chronic cancer, dare I say. And that's a different group of survivors that have different needs. And so I think of survivorship as a spectrum. need to think about it at diagnosis for many things, like fertility, as well as for things like limb-sparing approaches, tongue-sparing approaches, lumpectomy or mastectomy. That's a survivorship issue. That's not a, you know, that's something like, who cares whether you have a breast in the first, you know, six months? What you care about is a year from now, two years from now, five years from now, what's going to make you feel most whole, right? And help you live the fullest life. And so I think survivorship begins with our early decisions and then continues on for the duration of a person's life. And that's the way it's defined by our National Cancer Institute as well. And then we come in at different times, right? Survivorship focus is not a thing when you're in active therapy, Mm -hmm. but when things either settle down and you're in kind of a chronic phase, either in adjuvant therapy, like hormonal therapy in the breast cancer space, or if someone's living with indolent metastatic disease, they may have issues that kind of aren't necessarily focused on by the core oncology team, like their sexual health, their psychosocial health, their sleep problems, their smoking cessation, all of these things someone needs to focus on. And people have primary care physicians that can do a bulk of the work, but it's nice to centralize it often also at the cancer center if you can, because the cancer patients have unique needs. And often we have more resources because we have smaller numbers to support their, you know, their needs during the time that they're getting their long-term cancer care. And fair enough, you know, well, we call them general practitioners, but primary care physicians, uh, if you have a good one, it's the best thing in the world, but but they are so busy and don't have time to probably spend an hour with our patients, which we would love, but I appreciate it. And they may not know, nor should they know, the unique additional efforts and things and nuances for a cancer survivor that might get that patient more likely to say, you know, take on a new health behavior or quit smoking. I know the data that if you quit smoking with lung or head and neck cancer, even if you're ultimately going to die of that cancer, you live longer if you quit smoking. You know, your average primary care or GP is not going to know that. And so we can encourage and incentivize a person to say, hey, if you ever thought about it, now's the time. So it's a teachable moment that we know how to harness. They're very true. And with the survivorship, to grow it and make it become really integrated into our everyday practice like we have survivorship clinics and a lot of our patients at least the ones i do they they are somewhat reticent to remove themselves from their primary oncology doctor um my last question i promise uh how do you figure to for us to kind of move that needle forward in order to kind of really everyone loves saying that phrase now it's a thing i've heard like a dozen times since i've been here to really make it into that multidisciplinary team where you know the survivorship doctors there and now patients feel comfortable to go and see them for really these chronic issues so us as oncologists where you're doing chemotherapy or whatever it is you can focus on those acute things so i think that we are moving the needle so to speak in that many patients and many clinicians are now embracing the idea of survivorship but we have a lot of work to do for lots of both cultural and system reasons, it's hard to move patients and populations of patients. And I know you have this issue in in uh, Australia. We have it here too. I think the system is going to necessitate it and force the issue because of just resources. 
you know, we have more and more cancer survivors and more and more patients with cancer. I can't keep seeing all my survivors. Mm -hmm. I could spend all day seeing survivors and I'd never be able to see a new patient. And that's happening in clinics all around the world. And so we're going to need to shift patients to a different different system where they're well cared for, a different group of providers. So we're increasingly doing that. And I think some in some ways it's going to be, a, and it is a necessity. And on the flip side, what we're trying to do is make sure that we design a great place for patients to land where they feel supported and well cared for so they don't feel resistant to leave the oncology trenches, but feel like they're going to something that has a pull, not just a push to get out of the clinics, yeah, yeah. where they feel like, oh, I'm getting what I need because I no longer need active cancer therapy. I need someone who's going to focus on the whole healthy me, whether it's coordination of care, you know, screening for new primaries or recurrence, health behaviors or long-term late effects as the four main things we focus on in survivorship, and that that patient will also have a set of providers who are well-trained and don't make them feel anxious and make them feel like, I know what I'm doing. You don't need to run back to your oncologist unless there's a real new cancer problem. So we're working on that. Yeah, fair enough. And one final question, and I'll, I'll let you run to your very busy day. If you had some advice for your younger self, whether that be professional, personal, research, clinician, just some advice that you wish you, someone had told you when you were starting your journey in medicine and oncology, what would that be? So I, my best advice would be to kind of be patient with the process. And I have a quote that I love uh, that I try to live by, uh, and it's from Rainier Maria Rilke. Uh, and basically, the essence of it is live the questions. And it's what we do in science. We don't answer everything. We answer some, and then we find interesting things in the next question and the next thing to answer. And I think I try and do that both scientifically and from, you know, from a research standpoint and also from kind of a personal professional standpoint. Um, if you're constantly frustrated that you don't have an answer to something, uh, then I think you will live a life of frustration because there's just so many questions. Mm -hmm. And so I would say be patient with the process, push forward, and at the same time try and enjoy the process, enjoy the questions, live the questions. And this has been as wonderful as I expected it to be. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for listening to this episode of Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. If you like this episode, there's plenty more where that came from. Check out our website, inquisitiveonc.com, that's inquisitiveonc.com, for links to all of our previous episodes. You'll find links to our social media there as well. If you'd like a particular subject covered on the show, feel free to drop us a line on Twitter at inquisitiveonc or via email at inquisitiveonc at gmail.com. This has been Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, a podcast by ABC Production.